0: really, really great episode today. Came exactly at the right time. I have had three days of just feeling like I've been in a funk. I got my period on Saturday, which I've been waiting for for like seven weeks now. It was so late just because of all the fertility meds and stuff that was happening the previous month and getting sick and whatnot. Thought maybe I was pregnant for a second which would have been ideal had it been healthy. But anyways, I'm not. And I have just not been feeling my best. I just feel like I've been operating from a place of like a little bit of what Dr. Vora would say is like false anxiety, which doesn't mean it's not real. It's just a new way of looking at it, which is why this episode's just so, so interesting. We get into different types of anxiety, how to listen to yourself when they come up and how to differentiate between them to know how to actually deal with them. Dr. Ellen Vora is just awesome. She's a holistic psychiatrist. She's an acupuncturist and she's a yoga teacher. She takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, really considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root. This concept is so important as we know that so many things contribute to how we feel and our moods. Over the years, I've learned that so many pieces to the puzzle make us feel the best we can. It's not just about Talk therapy or medication. It's just about how everything in our lives looks and adds to the picture or subtracts from the picture. Dr. Vora received her BA from Yale University and her MD from Columbia University, and she is a board certified in psychiatry and integrative holistic medicine. This year, she released her new book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response. I will be taking it with me on my trip this week. I'm so excited to read it just to feel more empowered over my emotions. I am so excited for y'all to hear this and that she was ready and willing to be on this podcast. So here is Dr. Ellen Avora. Thank you so much for taking the time
1: to do this. Truly, it's an honor. And, you know, I always listen to prepare and you are just such a powerhouse. The people you have on, the way you got the interview... I'm so delighted to have this opportunity to talk and I've got so much out of your podcast. And you keep it so real. Oh my so God. Real. I
0: try. I try. That's what it's all about. I'm like, what's the yeah. purpose of doing all this if we're not gonna be honest about it? I think obviously what makes us all different are our unique experiences. And I think sharing those unique experiences, you know. The, you they feel so unique to you. But then when you actually share them, it's like, whoa, so many other people are dealing with this too. And then that sense of community and not feeling so alone actually really does help people. Completely. So let's start off, like talk to me about how you got started in the mental health field and just like your progression in, in your journey into what you're doing now.
1: How <laughs> Did I get into mental health? I mean, I found myself in medical school, which as an undergraduate, I studied English and I was interested in the human condition and the gray areas and complexities of this human experience. And someone could have saved me a lot of trouble when I was considering like, should I be an emergency medicine doc or should I go into germ or orthopedic surgery? Someone who just said, no, 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 no. If you were an English major as an undergrad, and then you find yourself in medical school, just go into psychiatry where you belong. (laughs) And so, I mean, that's
0: you're like the science and the math is just (laughs) not going to happen for me.
1: (laughs) No, I mean it's beautiful. Thank God. Some people are into nephrology. We need those folks. But I like acid-base equations. Don't light up my soul the way the human experience does.
0: Right. Right. So tell us now what you do
1: so i'm a holistic psychiatrist which is not a household term you can think of it like a weird psychiatrist but basically i went through medical training and then psychiatry residency and the whole time i felt a bit out of step i was out of alignment with the way i was being taught to address health and healing and so out of a crisis of feeling like so disenchanted with conventional medicine i went and pursued Chinese medicine and acupuncture, Ayurveda, nutrition and became a yoga teacher, which is like the cliche on these journeys. No, but it's amazing. And eventually studied functional medicine and psychedelic medicine. And and all of this informs everything I do with patients. So when I meet someone, I consider the whole portrait of their lives. It's not just thinking about mental health from the neck up or just their brain chemistry, but I'm thinking about how are they sleeping and what are they eating? and how are they pooping, and mm-hmm. do they have community in their life, connection to nature, to meaning, to purpose? Are they incredibly inflamed? Do they have sleep apnea? All of this comes to bear on how our mental health shows up on a day-to-day basis, and so that's how I approach mental health, and it's incredibly fulfilling.
0: That's really so amazing. I mean, I think it, it makes so much logical sense because when you think about typical like talk therapy, which is essentially what I do, which I'm not so sure if it's actually working for me because you're just talking. You're just telling essentially things that have happened, right? And you're trying to figure out how to not necessarily solve them, but how to work your way around them so that you can make sense of them and be okay with them. But I think that there's so much else, like you said, that goes into why you're even feeling this way in the first place or why these things are happening. Like what is going on in your life that's making these things happen all the time. And so it would only make sense that there would only be a holistic psychiatrist, like the thought of anything else but that, you know, just feels very surface. You're not knowing everything that's going on. And I think sometimes and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the issues that our country has is like this over medication. And perhaps part of that is because the doctors don't necessarily know all of these other facets that are going on in people's lives in order to help them with tools that aren't just medicine.
1: That's exactly right. And I think, you know, there is, of course, a role for talk therapy. I think it can be incredibly impactful. We need to process, we need to talk about what we're going through, and we need to feel witnessed. And it goes beyond that. I think a really good therapist it's really different than the kind of junky support we get from our friends. You know, thank goodness for friends. But we come to our friends and we're like, oh, this person is being so annoying. Aren't they being annoying? And our friends are like, yes, they're being so annoying. You're completely right in this situation, but they're annoying. And a therapist is going to be like, well. <laughs> right. Like let's,
0: like, let's look at this from another perspective.
1: So I think a good therapy you are being challenged and someone's pointing out your patterns and your role in the chaos. And then we start to show up differently in our lives. Mm-hmm. But I think to your earlier point, like that's one small slice of how we can be supporting our mental health. That's and different. I think about my therapist who I was seeing in medical school and I loved him and he was wise and he was amazing. And he really helped me look at my patterns and look, help me look at how I was showing up but he did completely miss a couple biggies in my life. Like Mm -hmm. the fact that birth control was perfectly chronologically associated with when I was feeling depressed. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I really didn't tolerate gluten and my IBS quote unquote, wasn't a result of my mental health issues and my stress. It actually was a cause.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we've talked so much actually here about gut health and how important gut health is in your mental health and how that obviously feeds... Everything. I deal with anxiety and depression, and I'm not even sure which one I deal with more. Depression definitely runs in my family. I was told my great grandmother was severely depressed, my grandmother was severely depressed, my aunt ended up committing suicide. I lost my dad almost 10 years ago up until then had a very happy life, but think that that life shift had a huge effect on maybe like sparked what what little anxiety and depression I had in me. I want to talk about anxiety and depression and like the differences. And also, obviously you wrote this book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. I want to talk about even more in depth, like what anxiety
1: is i'll say first just my condolences losing a parent too young and i lost my mom too young and it's just it's 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 really big it's mm-hmm. life-altering mm-hmm. and yeah and it can excavate anything else we're holding on to and it sounds you know I'm, I'm thinking about your genetic lineage and how there's intergenerational trauma there just even having suicide in the family is trauma for everyone around mm-hmm. And what is this genetic predisposition? And that's really how I always think about it. I think we get really weighed down by the idea of mental health issues as being so heritable that they're a destiny. You know, we say, like, well, depression runs in my family mm-hmm. and we feel destined to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little too heavy and overwrought. Basically, it's always a genetic predisposition, but the environment, plays a role in whether or not that manifests as mental health issues. Mm -hmm. In functional medicine, we would say genetics loads the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. And so we can't do a whole lot about our genes, but we can do a whole lot about the environmental influences that are interacting with our genes. Mm -hmm. The difference between depression and anxiety. You know, I really don't agree with my training and how I've been taught to think about these as, you know, to call it a diagnosis, to say it's a disease, it suggests that we really understand it Right. <laughs> and the cause and the treatment, the cure. And really at the very end of the day, depression and anxiety are symptoms. Mm-hmm. And Johan Hari, the author of the books, Stolen Focus and Lost Connections, he puts it so well when he describes depression and anxiety as covers of the same song. This is a brain out of balance. This is a mm-hmm. psycho-spiritual organism out of balance. And it's showing up. And then whether it manifests as depression or anxiety has a little bit to do with our temperament, even our culture around us. We're very much in a moment right now where people are identifying subjectively with anxiety. That's Mm -hmm. the tenor of our age. It's the Mm -hmm. pH of the water that we're swimming in.
0: It feels like people are just existing in anxiety right now. And now a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the world's most powerful fitness and health coach. Whoop isn't just another fitness wearable. It's really designed to provide personalized and actionable data based on your body. I overheard some friends talking about it. Actually, we were at the pool visiting some friends from out of town at a hotel this Saturday, and this woman was talking about it with her friends, like raving about it. It was so cool because I was like, we talk about them here. It works. So happy that you guys are actually using it. Really, you can wake up each morning with a personalized recovery score based on both the quantity and quality of your sleep, your heart rate variability, your respiratory rate, and other key vital signs. Whoop then coaches you through your day and provides recommendations on how hard you should really push yourself based on your recovery. I love when something is personalized when it comes to wellness and fitness because we are all so different and it's so hard to stick to a regimen that isn't made just for you or your body type. Plus, seeing objective results with data keeps me actually motivated. Whoop also just released their all new 4.0, which is 33% smaller and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. And finally, even more exciting news from Whoop, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. To celebrate that and Father's Day coming right up, Whoop is offering 15% off and free shipping when you use code WIT. That's W-H-O-O-P.com to save 15% and get free shipping automatically applied today. This episode is brought to you by Monk Pack. Monk Pack offers low sugar, keto-friendly bars, which are plant-based, gluten-free, and non-GMO. They're the perfect snack for anyone trying to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. Monk Pack bars have an amazing chewy texture and come in delicious flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, coconut cocoa chip, and caramel sea salt. The other morning, I had the coconut cocoa chip on my way to an appointment after running around doing mom stuff, and it was exactly what I needed. Delicious, perfect for a quick breakfast on the go a snack between zoom calls or even as a guilt-free decadent dessert you can avoid another trip to the grocery store and have monk pack delivered right to your door by shopping online get 20 percent off your first purchase of any monk pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code with wit at checkout to get started, just go to monkpack.com, that's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com, and select any product. Then enter the code wit at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monkpack is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. Back to the chat in your book you talk about false anxiety versus true anxiety i'm wondering what do you mean by these two things
1: i mean it's such a departure from how i was trained to think about diagnoses like I was supposed to call anxiety either generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder, with or without agoraphobia or OCD or PTSD. Always the idea with diagnosis. It's a little bit how we standardize mental health for our research studies, but it's also supposed to steer our management. It's supposed to imply, like, okay, if it's generalized anxiety disorder, therefore what's indicated is medication, or maybe for a panic, you would do cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And what I realized in my practice is that it was not steering management in a meaningful way mm-hmm. and a much more useful categorization of anxiety in my practice was to separate anxiety into two types. False anxiety, which is physical anxiety, its anxiety that's actually based in the physical body mm-hmm. and it's avoidable anxiety. It's unnecessary. It doesn't have to be happening. And then true anxiety, which is purposeful anxiety. It's not something to pathologize. It's not something to medicate away. And it's certainly not something that we can gluten-free or decaf coffee our way out of. (sighs) It's it's our inner compass Uh nudging us and telling us, slow down, pay attention. We know something's not really right here in our personal lives or in our community or in the world at large. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's asking for us to give this our attention and ideally even translate that feeling of anxiety into some kind of purposeful act so what
0: would be an example of false and then true
1: yeah so the false anxiety it's really built on the work of a woman named julia ross who wrote a book called the mood cure okay And she was like listen we have our real moods that's when a thing happened and we're in a mood as a result like your father passes away and you're grieving Mm -hmm. and then we have our false moods and those are those times when seemingly out of nowhere we're irritable, or we're sad, or we're anxious. The past
0: three days of my life. Also, mm. I'm yeah. on my
1: period. <laughs> <laughs> well, so there you go. Which yeah. is its own like nuanced, false, true anxiety. Well, well that, yeah,
0: that I want to talk about that too.
1: Yeah. yeah, but basically, if we could omnisciently look under the hood of the body in these moments when we're out of nowhere, irritable, sad, anxious. What we would see is that there's some state of physical imbalance happening usually something tripped us into a stress response and that stress response impacts the brain and then it shows up as anxiety or depression kind of depending on us and those physical causes of a stress response they're caused by these like benign aspects of modern life, being sleep deprived, being inflamed, a blood sugar crash, an extra cold brew coffee that day, a hangover, a, a hormonal crash. And so all of these things are creating untold amounts of what we're calling mental health symptoms. It's so much unnecessary suffering. And it's nice because there's a straightforward solution. We can identify the cause of this state of imbalance and address it at the root. I don't call it false to in any way invalidate the very real suffering. Of course, like of I course. was in a state of false depression for like five, 10 years. It was life altering suffering, but it's false because it, it's not our truth and it doesn't have to be happening. It's unnecessary suffering. It's avoidable anxiety.
0: I guess my question is though,
1: like, how do you
0: trust yourself to to delineate, to know what's false versus true. This weekend, starting on Saturday, I started to have this like physical anxiety. And I, in my head, I started to pinpoint what it was that was giving me the anxiety. And then the next two days, I was like still feeling it, but I was realizing it wasn't even the the thing that I thought it was at the beginning. But then I start to not trust myself to know is this a real issue that I should be having anxiety about that I need to deal with? Or is this something that is, like you said, just is it a hormone balance? Is it because I was up at five the past three mornings? You know, is it because I haven't eaten? lunch yet or it's like when these things happen are there questions we can ask ourselves or ways to check in to know what it is because i feel like sometimes i can't trust myself to know if this is a
1: real problem or not it's such an important distinction i think it is really hard in my book i create what i call i think it's called the false mood inventory (gasps) it's like a little handout i intend for people to scissor cut it out of the book and just put it on the refrigerator yeah because we need we in those moments when we're in like that tunnel vision of anxiety it's really hard to have the presence of mind to be like oh yeah i just need a snack or oh yeah i didn't sleep well last night or oh yeah i'm getting my period tomorrow Uh so to have something to just cue us and remind us here are the likely culprits is helpful i remember like you have a son right i have A six-year-old daughter and in the early days she'd be fussy and we'd be like what the heck is going on and we eventually put a list on the fridge like is she hungry is she tired does she need a diaper change does she need a burp you know these things that we is she teething mm-hmm. like we couldn't keep them all straight in our head mm-hmm. and so it was helpful to actually just cue us. And so, and adults were really just oversized toddlers at the end of the day. <laughs> exactly, And so, so it can cue you and remind you like, oh yeah, like I've been up since 5am. I haven't gotten enough sleep three days in a row. Yeah. I'm getting my period soon. Just to kind of recognize it might be amplifying or making something that's not, you know, our not life that circumstances. Big of a deal.
0: Yeah. It's like things can happen and we're allowed to get anxiety from them. And I felt like This situation this thing that was happening on saturday was really real but i thought that my reaction to it was unnecessary i like i was like i wish i wasn't feeling like this because this this is not this is too big of a reaction to what the situation is
1: there you go that's the critical distinction and i think the idea behind like why it's so empowering to know about our false moves and to identify them and address them is that it doesn't take away our the challenges in our lives, but we can approach them with a little bit more clarity, a little bit more resilience. So it's like, okay, th- there's something here that needs to be dealt with, but I can do this from a place of equanimity. I can do this without feeling like the world is barreling towards doom. It can just be, it, we can just handle the bumps
0: in the road a little more easily. Right. It can be more of like an isolated thing as opposed to a spiral that then takes over like your whole world. I feel like I've been... I've been living in a state, I think, of true anxiety for the past three years just because of my fertility struggles. I think that has completely taken over my brain space and everything that I do has been operating from a place of like, am I pregnant? Will I be pregnant? Am I going to have a second kid? Will I miscarry? Will how many eggs will be retrieved? How many embryos will we get? you know, will I have a kid before 40? And I just posted all this stuff on my social today, this like anxiety about it. And so I'm right now taking a little bit of break from that whole thing because I've been operating from this place of anxiety, I feel like, and just making myself sick, like really sick up here and sick physically because of it. And yeah, like I think figuring out the delineation of both of them really helps you to figure out how to deal with both of them.
1: So, a couple thoughts on this. One is that all things hormonal, the late luteal phase, our our sort of so called PMS, certainly the fertility journey, these are in many ways a combination of true anxiety and false anxiety. Okay. And, And I think that, take PMS for example, we have a cultural attitude that invalidates what comes up when we're. Menstrual. It says, like, we're being irritable, we're being bitchy. It's like, oh, you're not being reasonable. Right. Like, it's like, well, don't mess with me.
0: I'm, you know, I'm on my period. Yeah.
1: And I think there we kind of get it wrong because what comes up and what feels important to us in those moments, it's sort of like truth serum. Mm. I think that it's not that we are suddenly irrational. I think that our tolerance for BS goes down. Mm. So, what's not right in our lives, in our Partnerships in the world really feels urgent to us mm-hmm. in those moments, mm-hmm. and maybe we don't handle it with the most grace. <laughs> <laughs> grace. <laughs> but but I think that there is truth to it, and I and I really wish we could culturally shift around just like constantly the witch hunt of of invalidating the woman in this moment, and, and rather say like okay, like you have something really valid to say here. Let's catch our breath. Let's recognize that we're in a sort of false mood amplification of this feeling, but there's a truth inside of it. I think that there is also a true false anxiety. (laughs) There's also an actual false anxiety to the way we go through PMS in modern life, because there's two factors going into that. And one is that we are bathed in exogenous estrogens. It's coming at us through our personal care products and our cleaning products and plastics and phthalates and pollution and all of these endocrine disruptors, pesticides as well. So we have an excess of estrogen, people call it estrogen dominance. And then at the same time, we have this deficiency in progesterone because many of us don't get enough cholesterol in the diet. Some of us medicate away our cholesterol. And then if we're chronically stressed, our body does something called pregnenolone steel, where the precursor to progesterone is the same precursor to our stress hormone, cortisol. So if we're stressed, it gives the pregnenolone over to cortisol. It says that's the higher priority, and it keeps handing it over to cortisol when we are keeping more and more stressed. Then we just don't have enough progesterone, and this affects the ratio between estrogen and progesterone, which just makes our hormonal crash in the PMS period that much worse. So I think we are experiencing an exaggeration of our PMS symptoms, there is a false component to it, but I'm here to stand by like what comes up and feel what feels important to us in those days. There's truth to it. And not to mention in the fertility journey, there's all of these hormones and all of this stress and, and logistics and expectations and an emotional roller coaster. And there's there's so much, there's a chemical barrage and there's so much truth to it where it's this ultimately kind of spiritual pursuit, the childbearing journey and we've medicalized it. There's all this pressure on the woman. It's, it's so insanely stressful. It's so
0: stressful. It's so confusing. It's so all-encompassing because it not only takes over your body and you need your body to, to do something for you, but it floods your brain with all the what-ifs. And it's something that it's just so hard because it's all, it's this constant balance of control of thinking that you have some and like wanting to take some and like taking the medications and doing the things that you need to do and eating right. And and then there's, then that gets, you know, mixed with the brain of, do I want this? Do I not? This is too much for me to handle. And that is all then getting it's it's the brain and the body not necessarily always working together, and that's what's been so hard for me to to deal with. And I've I, I've finally come to terms and realized that that's where I've been operating from. I didn't even think I knew at the time. Like I thought, these past couple of years has just been stressful because of COVID and you know kid at home and me growing a business and supporting my family while while all this stuff was going on. And I kind of just was like. The, you know, of course I'm going to be stressed. But then I started to think about adding on this fertility piece to it. And I was like, if I just took that out of my life, what would I actually feel like? And for the past couple weeks, I have. I've been like, I'm putting this on a pause. I'm not going to think about it. I can't try for it right now. I don't want to put the meds in my body. I don't know if this is for me. And even just making that decision, I felt like a huge mental and physical load off me. And I feel like I have been able to make decisions from a place of what do I really want? Not what is this future me with possibly this second child want? For me, there's a lot of this, a lot of nonsense to on on social media and how like social media can affect our mental health. And there's all these people trying to tell us stuff and a lot of stuff is really great. And We want to use social media in order to like spread messages like this and create communities. But then there's so much about social media that just replicates this culture of comparing ourselves to others and then us not ever feeling good enough or like we're ever doing enough. What kind of presence of mind can we have while we are utilizing these social media so that we aren't constantly comparing ourselves to others while we're using them, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. And I think like I have this compulsive need to address one loose end in our fertility please, conversation please, please, and, then, please. and then transition to social media. I think what you just described about like giving yourself a break from this is a perfect illustration of hearing our true anxiety mm-hmm. and then translating that into purposeful action. This was just, it was overwhelming the system for you to be in ongoing fertility treatments. And I think to just take that off yourself for a moment and give yourself a break was you really honoring your true anxiety. And I think that this is, there will be clarity here. I mean, I've been listening to your podcast. You have had your, your voice in my ears for a few days now. And it's like, you know, I've heard you, if this is on your mind. And it's, I keep wanting to chime in and be like, you know, a question to, to float is you know not so much to have a yes or no answer but just to like live the question and explore the ideas like there are all these shoulds around kids right like it's like oh give your kid a sibling or give your partner another or, you know be fertile like you know this powerful womanhood thing all these shoulds and these pressures we put on ourselves and and i, I kind of just want to make sure that you're exploring the question of well, what do you want uh, there's truly no right answer I mean I live this question lives rent free in my head all the time like whether or not to have a second kid my daughter's almost seven but it's there are no right answers
0: that's so interesting so does it still live in your head
1: all the time all the time yeah yeah so
0: I it's so interesting it's it has over and sunny's four and a half like it was and still is I mean it's getting right now since I'm taking a break I'm really trying not to think about it so much but like kind of all I could think about. It wasn't because I wanted this second kid so badly because like, it's not out of my want. It's more out of, it's a couple things. It's out of wanting a sibling for Sunny, feeling this need to just like complete the family. And knowing that it's something that my husband wants, though he's continually said over and over that he would never want another one if it was something that I didn't want. That He only wants it if we both want to do it and can be healthy while doing it. And then I'm like, but I, the, the conversation that I've currently been having with myself is, will I look back in 15 to 20 years and regret not doing this? And then should I just push myself even harder just to do it, to get it done with so that I don't have regrets in the future? And where I'm at right now is that I do feel like I would have regret in the future about not, not going for it. However, there's only so much that I can do to make it happen. You know, there's there's limitations. It's not just something because I say I, I want it or I'm going to regret it. It's not just something that can happen so we're starting to explore other options whether it's just taking a break and then starting up an embryo transfer in a few months if i'm ready looking into surrogacy you know all these things that could that could possibly bring us that conclusion without all of the mental and physical strife and i'm trying to come to terms with like if we did do a surrogate kind of the judgment around that and and kind of the judgment around like the quote privilege of that makes me feel uncomfortable and brings me back to this like comparing myself to others thing and mm. that's the place that I'm at right now. I'm in like an exploratory phase of figuring out what all of my options are before I we decide what we really want to do. And I think I I feel good about that. I do feel really good about that, but I'm also just, I just want it to be over. Like I just want a decision to be made one way or the other and for it to just kind of be over so I can live my life not based on what the future holds, but what's
1: actually happening right now. So what you just said actually really informs our conversation about social media and I'm gonna talk about like the attention economy and how we feel unsafe when we're yes. speaking social media. That's a conversation worth having. Yeah. But I think it's also true that when we're looking to comparisons and looking to other people's highlight reels to, you know, reflect on our own lives, we're really out of our center. Like we're really not checking in with ourselves. And I think that there's this true yes and true no work to be done. Like this is the work of Marshall Rosenberg, who wrote the book Nonviolent Communication. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how we have a true yes and we have a true no. Mm-hmm. We also have our false yes, mm-hmm. which we give all the time. All the time. To avoid It's confrontation. okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah exactly.
0: Yes. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do oh, it. I'm next in. Thursday. <laughs> totally. Or like to my husband, yeah, I can do it. And then like five minutes re- later, resentful that I said yes because I wasn't like listening to what I really
1: actually needed to do. Yeah. And this is why it's great that like boundaries are a hot topic right now because we need to start practicing checking in with ourselves Mm -hmm. and knowing what's our true yes, what's our true no, Mm -hmm. and if it's a true no, we don't give our false yes. And we politely, respectfully say no. Mm-hmm. And if someone protests, you know, that's probably someone who felt entitled to something that wasn't theirs. Right, and that's, and, their,
0: that's their emotion. And we have to say that's,
1: mm-hmm. that's going to be theirs. That's not ours. We can't feel guilty about it. Exactly. And so when we make a choice, say like surrogacy, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. if that's something you choose for yourself, but then you worry about judgment or people kind of coming at you and being like, oh, the privilege, whatever it is. I think that it's disconnection from that can be your true yes. And if you know you're making that decision from a place of true yes, you know, people can come at you all they want. None of that can make you second guess your choice. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, like gossip, judgment, it's all to sort of help us refine our, like how we morally comport ourselves through the world. You mm-hmm. know, that's why it matters mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. us and to feel like we're, we're a part of the tribe, so We feel safe. You know, I think if you know that you're doing the right thing, then the sort of the world spinning into judgment is it just doesn't it doesn't matter
0: yeah I it, it just doesn't matter to you I think I mean that that is where I'm trying to be that's where and not only obviously with the surrogacy, but just like with everything else in my life, like being confident in making my decisions and living with what feels right to me, not basing any decisions on what anybody else is doing. But I think sometimes because of social media, all that stuff is like in our subconscious, you know, Mm -hmm. and we don't even realize sometimes that we're making decisions based off of how other people are living. And now a word about one of our brand partners. Father's Day is this weekend. Oh my God, I'm planning it as we speak. I wanna make it super special for Timmy because he's obviously just the best dad to Sonny ever. I went on to Macy's, as I have been for all of my recent gift giving situations. They really have you covered if you're stumped on the perfect gift for your dad, your uncle, grandfather, friend. They really have gifts for every budget and every type of father figure at Macy's.com slash gift finder. You want to feel good about the present. You know, you want to feel like when they're opening up, you feel proud of it. Also, make getting ready a treat with a fragrance. Oh, and also it's a gift for yourself, too. Ralph Lauren Polo makes a beautiful one or YSL makes an amazing one. And don't forget a grooming kit from Con Air. I know that seems like whatevs, but it goes far and it's something that they really need. Get that maybe along with the perfume, you know, but when we say Macy's has something for every dad, we really mean it. Coach watches, Michael Kors backpacks, barware for the mixologist in the making, Ugg slippers for the dad who just wants to take easy and be comfy. Timmy, I think, could use a good pair of Ugg slippers. He's literally the king of comfort as we know. Want to pick up a gift now or need more inspiration? Head on over to Macy's Gift Finder at com slash gift finder to make dad or any other father figure in your life feel loved and appreciated this Father's Day. Okay, now back to the
1: episode. What's helpful for me is like a quick primer on how to listen to the body, its way of communicating yes or no. And I really think about Martha Graham and how she approaches modern dance, like everything's an expansion or a contraction. And same goes with the body. Like if you're like, yes or no, second child, yes or no, surrogacy, yes or no, another round of fertility treatments. If we feel expansive, warm, that's our body's yes. Right. If we feel contraction, cold tightness, like our body is saying no, mm-hmm. and we can really stand by that. You know, then it's it's much harder to second guess ourselves when we felt our body answer in that way. I
0: want to know like the little things that we can be doing throughout the day to be checking in with our false anxieties, with our true anxieties, and making sure that we're operating from a place of like our true selves and not just our environments.
1: Yeah. yeah. And the way I structured overall is like the false anxiety—that's the low-hanging fruit. You want to kind of go through that inventory, eliminate, eradicate as much of that as you can. And that Mm -hmm. clears the air and Mm -hmm. it allows us to have the clarity to slow down and sit with and listen to our true anxiety. Mm -hmm. So common culprits of false anxiety, something as simple as blood sugar is a really common problem Mm -hmm. and really easily treated. So many of my patients with anxiety are actually on a blood sugar roller coaster, which many of us are because the modern diet, we have all these refined carbohydrates. We've kind of shamed healthy fats. And then our diet is built on like coffee drinks that are actually milkshakes and rosé all day. And so, you know, it's no wonder. And if we have, if we get hangry, like we're also getting anxious when our blood sugar crashes, our body has a stress response. That's the design. We secrete cortisol and adrenaline. That's what cues the liver to break down glycogen. It restores our blood sugar. It's a good design, but it has as a side effect this five alarm fire in the body, which can feel identical. To anxiety even panic feeling overwhelmed certainly waking up throughout the middle of the night so we want to keep our blood sugar stable and there's like a definitive way to do that which is eating a blood sugar stabilizing diet of you know real food eating like our great great grandmother ate right retraining our metabolism there's, there's a journey there and if that feels daunting there's a hack that could be pretty supportive which is to take a spoonful of something like almond butter or coconut oil at regular intervals, basically it's slow to digest, slow to be released into the bloodstream and gives us a safety net of stable blood sugar that can then blunt a crash. So I take a spoonful if I'm like going to head out of the house and I might be going to a, you know, some kind of networking event and it'll probably be like past weird hors d'oeuvres that are not, you know, in accordance with my snowflake, gluten-free, dairy-free diet. And then, you know, or before I brush my teeth at night, give myself stable blood sugar overnight. So, you know, my partner, you know, like some people always are like, their blood sugar crashes around 5 p.m. and they pick a fight with their partner that time every day. So like a blood sugar spoonful around 3, 3. 3.30 is a really good idea.
0: What does a day look like for you in terms of like your wellness? I'm always interested to talk to other like psychiatrists and mental health experts about like how they actually are making sure that they're taking care of themselves. themselves while they're obviously like sucking in so much grief and anxiety and stuff from other people you know
1: (laughs) yeah yes it's true yeah I mean I think that just on that last point I do do a lot of clearing practices for everything I take on from patients so I spray this particular kind of like sagey spray afterward and then I shake I do a shamanic shaking practice where I put on shamanic drumbeat music and i just close my eyes and shake my body for maybe a minute uh-huh. and it's weird and hippy dippy but it's very relaxing and it kind of presses control alt delete on my nervous system and seems to excavate what gets stuck in my tissues so it works for me basically i try I orient my life around taking care of myself i've learned this the hard way i was really out of balance in med school the years after that in residency I was really unwell. Like I had polycystic ovary syndrome and migraines and ocular migraines and joint pain. And I couldn't poop to save my life. Like nothing was working in my body. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was doing everything right. So I had to really learn how to keep myself in balance. And so I I do prioritize it in my life. But I'm at a point now where it's maintenance mode. Like there's wiggle room. I prioritize sleep. That's a non negotiable. I'm not good at that though. I recognize the importance (laughs) of it. But then, Like I'm a night owl and Mm -hmm. I love social connection and I feel like the best stuff always happens after midnight. Totally. And so I I, but for the most part, I try to try to go to bed before eleven is my goal. Yeah, same. And and I do (laughs) I'll put these on as a demonstration. I wear blue blocking glasses in the evening after sunset. I put them on at sunset. I wear them until bedtime. And this at least is a really powerful way to short of moving off the grid, throwing your phone away and having only candlelight in your home after sunset, all of the artificial light of modern life suppresses our melatonin and disrupts our circadian rhythm, makes it hard to sleep. Mm -hmm. So at least we can wear blue blocking glasses, block that blue spectrum light, and then we're protecting our melatonin release and our circadian rhythm. So this is one non-negotiable in my life. I do also make sure that I get a dose of sunshine into my eyes mm-hmm. first thing in the morning. Okay. So I'll into walk your my eyes. To school. Yeah, because that's basically what starts the clock on, our, on your circadian rhythm. The whole circadian rhythm or sleep wake cycle is cued by light. And this was the design on the proverbial Savannah of evolution was light tells our brain it's daytime, darkness tells our brain it's nighttime, that cues a whole hormonal symphony. But in modern life, it's all getting disrupted Mm -hmm. because we're not outside during the day, especially if we're working from home, we might not even leave our house. Mm -hmm. And then at night, we're surrounded by light. So I try to flip that script and approximate more like evolutionary conditions. Mm -hmm. So I get outside, see sunshine, it starts the clock so that I feel awake during the day. And it also sets us up to get tired at night. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dr.
0: Vora. You've been so awesome to chat with.
1: Amy, thank you so much for having me on and
0: thanks for doing what you do. Your podcast is powerful. Oh my gosh, thank you.